I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to Dreams of Black Wall Street on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us get the word out about the history on this podcast and what we do here. By now, it should be clear how many strides were made by people of color living in Durham, North Carolina, from around the turn of the century well into the early 20th century. You should also understand how much these people experienced great struggles. The legacy of Durham's Black Wall Street, along with the historic and prosperous Haytai community, remain among the more celebrated of those strides. The struggles, which historically have received far less attention, include the bridge building and the maintenance of those bridges between white and black leaders in Durham at the time that was necessary to ensure the continued growth of black Durham. Community building for African Americans could often be arduous and painful during the Jim Crow years. If successful, such efforts could be extremely rewarding. Depending on the community, however, sometimes that success was short-lived. Other times, it was never even realized. In the case of Black Durham, notwithstanding the difficulty and often dangerous nature of being Black in the Jim Crow South in the early 20th century, the efforts of the city's African-American community builders yielded significant multidimensional gains for many people. The accomplishment is even more remarkable considering the lack of political representation Blacks possessed following the 1900 white supremacist campaign and suffrage amendment, which eviscerated Black political participation in the state until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Also overlooked when talking about the history of Black Durham are the high costs of the building of that community. One such example involves a man who would help pioneer educational advances for African-Americans in North Carolina, but whose own dreams were deferred in the process. That man is Thomas Raymond Hocutt. In order to understand his story, you'll need to recall to memory some of the characters introduced in the previous episodes. Cece Spaulding. As a young man, he joined North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, co-founded by John Merrick and Dr. Aaron Moore, Spaulding's uncle before later going on to run the company himself. W.G. Pearson, a businessman and educator who co-founded Mechanics and Farmers Bank with R.B. Fitzgerald and helped with the development of what is now North Carolina Central University. And James E. Shepard, a pharmacist, businessman, and educator who founded what was the North Carolina College for Negroes and is now North Carolina Central University. In an article published in the Journal of Southern History entitled Graduate Education for Blacks in North Carolina, 1930 to 1951, Augustus M. Burns III writes, quote, This is Mr. Hocutt, a new student who needs his class schedule and dormitory assignment. Black newspaper editor Lewis Austin informed the incredulous registrar at the all-white University of North Carolina. It was February 1933, and Thomas Raymond Hocutt, a graduate of the North Carolina College for Negroes in Durham, wanted to study pharmacy. Counseled by two Black attorneys in Durham, Conrad Odell Pearson and Cecil Aubrey McCoy, as well as Austin, Hocutt sought admission to the state's only pharmacy school, 
located in Chapel Hill. Hogut's efforts to enroll at an all-white state university in the South signaled the beginning of an 18-year campaign in North Carolina to open the state's graduate and professional institutions to its Black citizens. It also portended a concerted campaign to end segregated education all over the South. Three years earlier, in 1930, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People had concluded that Black Americans and their white allies would support a direct attack on racial inequalities in American education. The NAACP, aided by a grant of $100,000 from the American Fund for Public Service, established a war chest specifically for this purpose, engaging Nathan Ross Margold, a former assistant United States attorney in New York, to initiate a full study of the Negro's legal status. On May 20th, 1932, the association announced its intention to attack all types of discrimination and promised legal challenges to public education. End quote. In the book, Upbuilding Black Durham, Gender, Class, and Black Community Development in the Urban South, the late Dr. Leslie Brown explains how the situation unfolded. Quote, Where better to launch a campaign against racial inequities than where Black leaders were unlikely to suffer economic repercussions for their activism? To its external boosters, Black Durham always had stood as a symbol of positive racial attributes, mutual aid, self-help, race pride, and enterprise ingenuity, initiative, and autonomy. And it helped this radical cause that Black Durham had a reputation for caution and vigilance in racial affairs. Quote, the Durham Group, end quote, as NAACP officials called local Black leadership, was known to support the organization. Spalding and his managers had donated money. Second, the Durham Group knew how to manipulate the racial status quo to its benefit. Knowing that Southern whites would do anything to maintain segregation, for instance, Black Durham had gotten some of the best public education facilities for African Americans in the South, including the only high school for Black students in the state and one of the few in the region, seven elementary schools and an eighth in the planning stages, and North Carolina College for Negroes. Within the local educational community, teachers were the NAACP's strongest supporters, and over a hundred Black women teachers staffed the Durham Black schools. Durham's Jim Crow generation had followed the path as instructed, but now they were prepared to step into their new roles as social engineers who would launch the next phase of the battle against segregation and discrimination. End quote. Brown goes on to write, quote, in 1933, two campaigns based in North Carolina marked the NAACP's first efforts to equalize black and white education. In February 1933, Cecil McCoy and Conrad O. Pearson, William G. Pearson's nephew, working independently of the NAACP, proposed to challenge the practice of excluding black students from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The political differences between the younger and the older Pearson alarmed local whites immediately. An editorial in the Durham Morning Herald tagged McCoy and Pearson as, quote, younger and more assertive members of the Negro race, end quote, charging that the Black attorneys were, quote, playing with fire, end quote. The paper agreed that African Americans might present, quote, a strong case with the Constitution forming the vital part of their brief, end quote, but, quote, all things that are just are not expedient, end quote, the editor warned. Quote, to our way of thinking, they will find in the end that they have won not a victory, but a costly defeat, 
end quote. The suit had gone forward, the newspaper claimed, over the, quote, mild protest of more tolerant and conservative groups, end quote, meaning Spalding, the senior Pearson, and James E. Shepard, president of North Carolina College for Negroes. Quote, members of the Negro race, certainly its leaders, do not object to segregation, end quote, the newspaper claimed. Quote, and the white race insists upon it, end quote. Not surprisingly, the paper issued a veiled threat. A win in the courts would, would quote, rob, end quote, African-Americans of, quote, many rights now enjoy, end quote. Brown later writes, quote, The NAACP regarded Hokut's case as precisely the circumstances it needed to attack segregation at its most vulnerable point. African-Americans in most states, and especially in the South, could not attend the schools where programs led to professional fields that required licensing and specialized training. In order to practice law or pharmacy, which were regulated by the state, the legal team argued students should be able to train in the state where they intended to practice. None of the North Carolina Black colleges offered law or pharmacy training and therefore did not fulfill the mission of public education. It would be a costly endeavor to pay tuition for Black Southern graduate students to attend programs in the North. This prospect also irked white Southerners because such education implied a liberal outlook that they hoped to keep outside the region. Segregated graduate training, which older Black leaders and liberal whites might have preferred, also required that Black facilities be equal to those offered at white institutions. In pharmacy and law, this would require the enormous expense of building facilities, hiring faculty, and furnishing libraries and laboratories equal to those of the prestigious University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Either choice, as far as the Durham lawyers and the MAACP were concerned, would financially break the Jim Crow system by bankrupting the state. Finally, a decision that admitted Black students to white-only schools theoretically reversed Plessy versus Ferguson, the constitutional underpinning of Jim Crow in the Southern political economy and in race relations. Overturning Plessy on the basis of graduate education not only carried implications for K-12 education, but also foreshadowed revolutionary transformations in other Southern institutions, like unions, and in spaces like public accommodations. The Hokut case served the NAACP legal agenda well in beginning its effort to dismantle the structural underpinnings of Jim Crow. African Americans in Durham split over the appropriateness of the suit. Indeed, Black leaders reportedly, through the local branch of the NAACP, backed a proposed bill to authorize out-of-state tuition as a, quote, cooling-off strategy. Still, the, quote, militant Negroes voted to demand a showdown on the case, end quote, in the Herald's language. In contrast to the local branch, the NAACP supported the suit, sending William Hasty, its premier attorney, to assist Pearson and McCoy. Filed in Durham County Superior Court, the case was moved to Raleigh and into the state judicial system, where Wilson, the university registrar, argued that Hokut lacked sufficient preparation to enter the institution. Hasty made a strong argument, which, with the Constitution on its side, the NAACP possibly could have won. But Hokut's apparent failure to follow all application procedures doomed his case. Unable to produce a transcript certified by his graduating institution, Hokut lost on a technicality that was engineered by James E. Shepard. 
president of North Carolina College for Negroes, which intentionally withheld Pocut's transcript. Holding this last card, Shepard acted to protect his institution and reinforce his position. He declared that Hokut would not graduate in the spring, as the plaintiff had claimed. Shepard worried, appropriately so, that the state would retaliate to the detriment of Black education, potentially cutting funds or denying any future expansion. Furthermore, Conrad Pearson maintained Shepard had grown powerful in Black educational circles as a warrior and negotiator. The NAACP's intervention usurped his local power and influence. Head of the strongest of the state's Black colleges, Shepard was positioned to demand more for his constituency. The Hokut case, in his view, threatened to end his reign and to undermine the progressive stance that whites had been willing to take in expanding educational options for the race. Thomas Hokut's suit, although a defeat on the way to Brown versus Board of Education, inspired the NAACP legal team by highlighting the strength of direct challenge. But for Shepard, the case was won. End quote. As previously mentioned, the late Dr. Brown co-coordinated a collaborative research and curriculum project at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University called Behind the Veil, documenting African-American life in the Jim Crow South. On this season of the podcast, we've featured a number of oral history interviews that were recorded as part of that project. Here's another, this time with a Durham native named Benjamin Page, You'll hear Paige talking about the impact of the Thomas Raymond Hokut lawsuit in Durham and the state of North Carolina. The interview was conducted by Mausiki S. Scales and Valeris Bellamy. story on the civil rights movement when that the after blacks began suing for administering white to keep blacks out of University of North Carolina for instance when the state of North Carolina later to keep blacks out passed laws saying if you couldn't get graduate education if you couldn't get for instance, training in certain areas, then uh, the state of North Carolina would pay for tuition for you to take that particular course or particular type of thing at some school that would, which would be some northern school. Okay. Were there anybody making those same demands before the civil rights? But before the formal civil rights, one of the most interesting the things that they often forgotten instead of them was in 19, must have been about 1932 or 33, a fellow Raymond Hokut, the finished North Carolina Central. It was North Carolina College for Negroes, and <laughs> the name of school North Carolina College for Negroes. Raymond Hokut sued the University of North Carolina admittance to the school of pharmacy, <coughs> pharmacy and of course he was denying 
he was denied the right to enter the school of pharmacy, so he sued them. And that was one of the early test cases. And um, this um, NAACP was backing them, and they had the case in Coastal Fuggers there. I don't know what the names system remember what now. But it was sent down by the NAACP, and they tried to court, and because he was quite an orator and quite an argument, and he argued, and he won. He, of course, lost the case, because back then in the 30s, the whites and the white judge wouldn't really admit. So what, then, happened, what happened in the case? Well, in the case, he lost the case, but... After they lost the case, even though they lost the case, that's when North Carolina, in order to avoid Negroes going like he was suing for entering the school of funk, in order to avoid uh, keeping them out of the white school, then the state of North Carolina later passed a law, passed so that the state of North Carolina would pay a blacks tuition, say for instance, the school of pharmacy. If you want to go to school of pharmacy, uh, did many blacks uh, respond to that? Well, quite a few. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There wasn't in the whole sale, but that many blacks that were interested in going into professional schools and <laughs> graduate degrees, but they, uh, the state of North Carolina did what paid the tuition that, that proceeded, and then later. Only state of North Carolina began to establish graduate school at the black campuses, and but of course they didn't have mid school, and so the mid school was still um, was, was still they were still paying tuition from them. But they established graduate schools in, for instance, in North Carolina Central. Particularly in the field of education, because so many of them are teachers, but in graduate courses in education and sociology. also have a good idea of who were some of Black Durham's major players and most influential leaders. Among them, two men considered the most influential pioneers of Durham's Black Wall Street, entrepreneur and businessman John Merrick, as well as Durham's first Black physician, Dr. Aaron Moore. The men were well known for co-founding and leading North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company. They were, however, individually both incredibly accomplished. As a united force, they were protagonists in one of the greatest Black success stories of the early 20th century. Next, you're going to hear from two of their direct descendants. First, Charles D. Watts, Jr.
my name is Chuck Watts. I currently serve as the city attorney for the city of Greensboro, North Carolina. I grew up here in Durham and went to school here at Carolina. I did go away for two years for prep school, but pretty much was here until my 20s. And then uh, left and went to grad school at Indiana and then lived in New York for a while, worked at Bristol Myers, and then went back and went to law school. And after I finished college at Carolina, I was gone and did various things around the country in D.C. and New York and Nashville, Tennessee, even had a short stint out on the West Coast. But came back here in about 1995 and began working at Julius Chambers' law firm, which is kind of a famous civil rights law firm. I went in to sort of be the replacement for Congressman Mel White, who had just gotten elected to Congress as their business attorney. To be the business attorney at a civil rights law firm is kind of a special niche that very few people can fit. <laughs> but I did that for a while, but then they really wanted me to move to Charlotte. I really wanted to be in Durham and really had my eyes on going to work at Arcana Mutual. And I did uh, ultimately get there in about 1998, I think. Worked there for about 10 years. The company kind of had its challenges and leadership issues and all that kind of thing. And ultimately, I departed and sort of tried to reinvent myself into being other things. So first I became kind of a um, community activist. Then I needed to get back into the practice of law and I became kind of a uh, real estate development attorney. Did a lot of work with projects in downtown Durham. Downtown Durham has had quite the revitalization. And I represented a number of the developers downtown. Some of the more prominent buildings in Durham now were buildings I worked on and got done. And then when I was a community activist, I got the eye of some of the politicians and they invited me to be on the Board of Transportation for the state of North Carolina. And I did that through from uh, when Bear Perdue was governor of North Carolina under the Democrats. And when the Republicans came in under uh, McCrory, I was escorted to the door, which is the way it's done. <laughs> but when the Democrats came back in under Cooper, I got a call to be uh, general counsel for the Department of Transportation. And I did that for a couple of years. But then ultimately, that was kind of my entry point into civil service, public service. It was an interesting experience in the state political world. And then this opportunity in, in Greensboro popped up and I decided to go for it and have been doing that for the last two or three years. Yeah. Right. And so you mentioned North Carolina Mutual. My next question to you is going to be, would you mind just explaining your connection to some of the, I guess, early leaders, Black leaders of Durham, the influential patriarchs? And we know your mother was Constance Merrick Watts, and she was the granddaughter of Durham's first Black physician, Dr. Aaron Moore. I believe your sister helped write a book about Dr. Aaron Moore and also North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company founder, John Merrick. And although your father wasn't one of the early patriarchs of Durham, he also was very influential in North Carolina. He was Dr. Charles Watts, and he was also the first surgeon in North Carolina. So that's a that's a lot of big shoes to fill. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud of all of it, you know. Yeah, my, my mother was the granddaughter of Merrick and Moore, who were kind of 
very much leaders around the turn of the last century in Durham. Not only were they the founders of North Carolina Mutual, but literally they founded or were participants in the founding of nearly every Black institution that existed at that time. I mean, not all the churches, but they each had their own church that they were connected with. But North Carolina Mutual, Mechanics and Farmers Bank, there was a series of other Black entities that were existed on Paris Street that they had, were involved in founding, including Bank's Fire Insurance Company and a number of other businesses during that time, but also they were involved in like the founding of North Carolina Central University. They were one of the listed founders. The leader of that group was Dr. Shepard, but they were obviously part of the team. So yeah, their contribution during that time, basically in the post-Reconstruction period, when you know, a lot of things were going in the wrong direction for Black people in America. They were really making strides and helping to make Durham a place that was special, not just in the South, but frankly, across the country. I think Durham had more Black capitalism up until maybe the early 50s when it was passed by Chicago. And Chicago was a you know, a city of multi-million people, and Durham was a city of 100,000. So there's a famous quote from W.E.B. Du Bois, who came to Durham, saw what was going on, and wrote that to Black people across the country, that if you were contemplating going to Europe, don't go. Go to Durham. See what it's like to have Black people, you know, existing in an environment where they had the kind of opportunity that Black folks had, really in the first half of the last century. So all that you talk about is true in that regard. My dad, it's funny, uh, my dad and his best friend married sisters. My mother and her sister, Vivian Sansom was her married name, Vivian, Merrick Sansom. They both came here and got involved in kind of the legacy of the family. He became the president of Mechanics and Farmers Bank. And my dad was involved with North Carolina Mutual they had had the history of having a medical doctor on board. The history of black life insurance companies in North Carolina and in America basically started after slavery when white insurance companies weren't sure that black people were going to survive freedom. Being just kind of insane to think that black folks made it through, you know, 200 years of abject slavery and white folks were concerned that they weren't going to be able to make it in a free world. But so black insurance companies came about. North Carolina Mutual wasn't the first. Really, Merrick had been involved with one out of Richmond that had kind of fallen on bad times. But North Carolina Mutual became the largest and was at one point was the most solid and well sort of represented in terms of management and accounting structure and all that kind of stuff. It's ironic, but at its demise basically came about because of a incompetence at that same level. So I don't really want to talk about that much, but I may write a book about that someday. <laughs> well, I look forward to reading it. <laughs> we'll focus on the more positive aspects of that history. Exactly. You know, we talk about, you know, white folks being concerned, Black people couldn't survive in freedom. We know that racism was very much a part of the daily reality of African-American life. That includes in Durham. 
in the surrounding area, as well as elsewhere throughout the South. I wonder, uh, based on your knowledge, how your forefathers in Durham facilitated this racial cooperation we hear so much about when we talk about Durham between Blacks and whites during that post-Reconstruction era. Yeah, well, I mean, I've read about it a lot. Obviously, I wasn't around then, but it did seem like that there was some kind of something special happening in Durham. There's a there's a movie that came out about the history of Durham. There's an interesting quote in there from John Hope Franklin, and he talks about Durham during the sort of middle part of the century and how there was, you know, just a special thing that seemed to be happening in Durham such that there wasn't the sort of extreme racial strife. There certainly was, you know, racism and segregation, but the communication across the lines occurred at certain levels. And I think the story has been that C.C. Spaulding, who was a nephew of Dr. Moore, that they basically brought into the company, into North Carolina Mutual. He became the third president after the two of them had served their terms as presidents and passed on. But he really led the company through its greatest period of growth. And literally, by the time he passed in the early 50s, he was CEO and chairman of the board of North Carolina Mutual. He had the same roles at Mechanics and Farmers Bank. He was also the chairman of the board at NCCU. I mean, well, which was, of course, at that time, North Carolina College for Negroes. And he was really literally sort of master of all he surveyed. And he was really a incredible leader during that time period and kind of carried their torch forward. But he had kind of the personality to make that work. And there was this relationship that that your forefathers had with some of the white leaders in Durham as well. We do know a, a lot about that relationship. But I wonder what were some of the underlying unspoken sort of rules that existed that kind of helped that cooperation to sustain for so long? Well, I guess what you're talking about really is it starts back with John Merrick. He was Benjamin Duke's barber. And so that was kind of a a relationship of trust and confidence, <laughs> you know, for a white man to allow a black man to have a knife that close to his neck required some confidence, right? But I, I wasn't around then. I've read a lot about it. I've heard a lot about it. But there was some level of communication that occurred between them from time to time. And I think C.C. Spaulding carried forth with that as well. And the stories about him kind of being the person who would help to keep things from boiling over, but to also make sure that, you know, the white power structure heard what was going on. So then, you know, he passed away in the early 50s. And shortly after that, not that long after that, Black folks started becoming involved in the politics in Durham. The Durham Committee on Affairs of Black People came into uh, effect, I think, in their mid-30s. And I think these institutions also helped to represent the interests of Black people, but also provided a basis for credible communication between the sort of two camps of Black and white. I came into this world in the mid-50s and grew up as a small child in the strictly segregated Durham, North Carolina. I don't recall really seeing a white person until maybe the mid-60s. 
I do ever? have one memory. Ever, ever? Ever, ever. ever. Wow. Yeah, ever, ever, ever. So I mean, that I sort of like cradle to grave existence was still in existence when you were a child. Oh, very much so. Very much so. You know, really the story of my life has been dealing with integration, the whole process of integration. I've been, the, you know, in the forefront of Black students, you know, coming to the prep school that I went to, you know, going to the elementary school that I went to going to Carolina. I mean, Carolina admitted Black students in the 50s, but they never had a critical mass of Black students until the class in front of me. So at at UNC, we actually talk about the Black graduates before that class and earlier as the Black pioneers, because they went to school at Carolina in an environment where a friend of mine who finished in 68 told me that there was no Black students in his class. Well, I did the research. There was 50 black students in his class. He just didn't know it. So imagine going to a school and you don't even know that there's other black people. It's that big. There's a little more factual matter that makes that credible is that he went to school at Carolina, but he lived in Durham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <With his family. laughs> okay. So he kind of, he was kind of a home student, but he was still, I mean, I went to Carolina when I was in high school to, to get my French credits up to the level so I could graduate. But when I went over there, that was after my junior year in high school. You know, I went to school. I would rarely see a black person. But by the time I left Carolina in 77, you know, there was a thousand black students on campus. There was a whole section of the campus that was kind of like known as where black people hung out. And that just didn't exist previously. So, but that's, that's just part of my experience. So when I, I grew up, I mean, I guess I must have seen white people, but I mean, you know, I went to a black barber in the southeast part of Durham. I went to a black dentist in the southeast part of Durham. I went to a black doctor in the southeast part of Durham. I went to elementary school in the southeast part of Durham. We went to church in the southeast part of Durham. So I don't remember really maybe going downtown at some point. I do have a remembrance of uh, going to Watts Hospital one time with my dad, but that would have been in the mid-60s. Because they didn't have black doctors over there until, you know, after one of the the civil rights laws in 64 required hospitals to become desegregated. And that's when my dad ended up starting to practice over at White's Hospital, which was segregated before that. And I do remember going over there with him one time at that time period and seeing a whites only water fountain. So I must have been about 10 at the time. And I'm like, what the heck is that? I mean, I I was like... (laughs) And my dad was like, come on. (laughs) But, you you know, know, it's so funny. You mentioned that because you mentioned Du Bois and and, and how he used to praise Durham. And he talked about that cradle to grave nature where you can be born, you know, by a a black midwife, you know, be delivered by a black midwife, go to black schools and churches and stores and be buried by a black undertaker. And so I just didn't know that it was still happening, you know, I mean, that basically, yeah, I mean, that were, you know, there were several things that broke that down, but definitely integration had an effect on that. And I'm like a child of integration. So I went to segregated school in W.G. Pearson, which was right across the street from my dad's office until the fourth grade when I started to, uh, <laughs> I always tell the story, it's pretty funny because when I started grade school, they didn't have kindergarten. I just went to the first grade. 
I had gone to a nursery school over at Central. Central's education department had a, a nursery school for kids, and I had gone to that. But then when it came time to go to school, it was W.G. Pearson. My mom walked me the pathway to school the day before. The next day, I had breakfast, and she said, okay, see you at school. And basically, I walked to school, you know, with a bunch of guys that were walking to school, and we kind of threw rocks at each other until we got to school, which was maybe a mile and a half away. I mean, today, DSS would have been knocking at the door. What the heck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was, you know, it was a safe environment. It was, you know, it was our community. I knew probably, you know, people on every block between there and school. So it just wasn't an issue. You know, uh, there were other kids that were older than me who had done it the year before who walked with us. Just not an issue. When I got to the fourth grade, they drove me over there a while. But ultimately, you know, it was the same thing. I ended up catching the bus to, to downtown Durham and changing buses and then going to <laughs> a second bus to let me off within maybe two blocks of the school and then walking that way. I'm in the fourth grade. <laughs> I wonder, because you talked about how special Durham was, but as we know, and I've mentioned on this podcast, some people don't know until they listen or read certain books that there was more than one Black Wall Street. And there were other communities that may not have carried the moniker Black Wall Street, but were similar in nature. Richmond, we've covered Tulsa on this podcast. We've covered Rosewood, Eatonville, Florida, so on and so forth. But you know, there seemed to be something about Durham that from the outside looked even more like a utopia than it really was on the inside. And even despite some of the racism that you mentioned and things that were challenges for African-Americans commonly during that period still seemed to be a higher level of cooperation. And so I don't know any other way to phrase it other than saying harmony. <laughs> well, I think, you know, utopia and harmony are probably not <laughs> really the terms that should be applied. But because, right. I mean, obviously, there was a heck of a lot of oppression, right. undereducation, underemployment, you know. But the interesting part to me was that all the Black people basically lived in the same side of town, pretty much. I mean, there were other areas of Durham that had Black people, black communities in it, but the southeast portion of Durham was sort of near where Central was, was kind of the biggest block of black folks in Durham. You know, I would And that's I would just kind of, say, to my point, what I was saying before is that there was this racial cooperation that people talked about, but there were these unspoken rules at the same time that facilitated that racial cooperation. So I guess what I'm trying to understand is in Durham, there seemed to be plenty of oppression like there was elsewhere throughout the South. But at the same time, there seemed to be these social standards or social norms that made Durham function at a relatively more peaceful level than elsewhere where similar communities, prospering, thriving Black communities, were also the sites of racially motivated violence or massacres. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it was the independence. I mean, you know, I, I don't really know what these other places were like. I can only talk about what I've learned about Durham. You know, I don't think white people were as threatened in Durham as they were in, like, Wilmington. I mean, you actually had Black people, you know, taking control of the city government. <laughs> 
And, you know, a lot of, I think what we deal with today, it's, it's really goes back to that whole fear of a black planet. I mean, they just are so concerned that black people are going to take over or people of color are going to take over, which they will. But that just freaks some people out. And I think it led to a lot of irrational behavior by the white people in those places. And I guess, I don't know, maybe, you know, there's an old phrase that says in the North, they don't care how big you get. They just don't want you to be too close. And to some extent, that was true in Durham. I mean, Durham had a lot of sustaining institutions. Like, for example, Lincoln Hospital, which was pretty much, I think, started by, you know, Dr. Moore with some money from the Duke family. And you could look into that history. But if you compared that hospital, which was a modern, you know, of its era, you know, 40s, 50s hospital, they didn't have such a hospital in like Detroit, which was a major city. The black hospital they had there was owned by a doctor's family. You know, it wasn't like you know, a nonprofit entity that actually had some sustainability in it, you know. So one of my dad's major accomplishments really was converting Lincoln Hospital over to a community health center now. So a lot of people in Southeast Durham now are able to get free health care, Lincoln Community Health Center. I think that's kind of marks the spot about, like, the independence that black folks had in Durham. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, you know, and maybe, you know, the, the white folks are making so much money and connected with Duke and all of that. Maybe they kept themselves kind of under control about it or didn't see it as a threat or whatever. But what leads a mob of white folks to kill a bunch of black people who are really no threat to them only because they seem to be able to sustain themselves in a capitalist society is just beyond me. I don't know how you try to understand that. It's not understandable. Yeah, I think you're right. (laughs) And I've done a lot of work trying to understand it. But I think at the end of the day, (laughs) it takes a certain pathology, you know, and if you did not possess that pathology, then it just will not make sense to you. Exactly. So I've always thought it was one of the positive things about Durham that, you know, in 1898, when North Carolina Mutual was actually founded, that was the year that white folks in Wilmington decided to basically take a gun to the head of the duly elected city council and tell them to get out of town. Eileen Watts Welch, president of the Durham Colored Library. She's also the sister of the previous speaker, Charles D. Watts, and like her brother, a direct descendant of John Merrick and Dr. Aaron Moore, who she helped write a book about. This 
season, I'm really focusing on two communities, Durham and Wilmington, and oh, using these communities as a lens into the multi-dimensional Black experience in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, it was a very dynamic period of time. I'm really focusing on, you know, how the two are interconnected. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of joint family members and good friends in both places. And people left Wilmington after the riots. Some ended up coming to Durham to escape the horrors. And then also I've heard that some went to Tulsa and then they were burned out again. You know, I have heard that as well. I didn't hear that until I started to work on this season uh, about North Carolina. Absolutely fascinating and then devastating at the same time. I went west because of opportunities west to leave, you know, Wilmington's opportunities were with shipping mostly. And then they left to go west where there were a lot of black. There are a lot of black communities, you know, Ohio places in the Midwest and West that popped up and people were able to, you know, gather as a enlarged family, basically. There's a, a woman here in Durham who I talked to recently. I wasn't aware of the Ohio one near Oberlin College down in that area. Her grand, great-grandparents and several family members bought land together and they had churches and schools and stores and a bank and all of that in that I don't know how many acres together in their homes and isolated themselves. So that's what they were doing was finding places where they could be protected from the kinds of horrors that Wilmington and later Tulsa. So you have a very interesting family history as it relates to Durham. I believe your mother was Constance Merritt Watts. Is that correct? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she was the granddaughter of Durham's first Black physician, Dr. Aaron Moore, who you helped create the biography of and the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company founder, John Merrick. So (laughs) quite a rich family dynamic. Do you want to kind of just give me a little brief history about that? So we did six years of research to identify enough heavily documented and footnoted material that others have not found actually, and done that with. So yes, my brother and I are children of Constance Watts, Constance Merrick Watts, and her grandparents, grandfathers, were John Merrick and Aaron McDuffie Moore. So Moore was her mother's father, and Merrick was her father's father. Okay. They became best friends, the two of them, when Moore was at the Leonard School of Medicine in Raleigh. He grew up in Columbus County, North Carolina, which we call Down East, which isn't too far from Wilmington, but it is an enclave that was protected. And his mother and his grandmother and grandfather were Benjamin and Edith Spaulding. His mother was the only daughter that Benjamin and Edith Spaulding had, and they had nine children. So she was one girl. That's why his last name is Moore. She married Israel Moore. And she had eight children of her own. So there were church schools there. He had gone to a normal school there. The normal schools were schools that Northerners came down and began to teach how to teach to African-Americans. And there was one in Columbus County at the time. 
There were several normal schools in North Carolina. In fact, Fayetteville State, which was founded by one of Aaron Moore's uncles, was actually originally a normal school. So he had that kind of background. One of his older cousins was the last African-American in the U.S. Congress, George Henry White, at the end of Reconstruction. So they were in an educated community, and they took care of each other with churches and several churches. And he taught in the schools and in the churches and loved teaching, decided he wanted to come to Shaw University and learn to be a better teacher. And that year, in 1888, they had their second class in their Leonard School of Medicine. They recruited him when he came. They must have impressed them during the interview process. I don't know. He came on a train from Columbus County up to Shaw. And Shaw had been around. So Raleigh had, you know, that college. They had St. Aug. They had a hospital for African-Americans. So people were coming to the state capital from the rural areas, different places to work, to get away from the farm. So he always had thought about going back, becoming a better teacher and going back and, you know, working with the young people there. And he ended up entering the second class, a four-year program, completing three years, graduating in three years and taking the medical boards. And in the meantime, Merrick was there. He had been a slave. He was born in slavery. He had brick masonry, brick training, trade, and barbering. And he had barbershops in both. You've probably read this in a building. He had barbershops for whites and blacks in both Durham and in Raleigh, ultimately. And he knew about the population here in Durham that had no medical care the African-Americans who had migrated to Durham to work in the tobacco and textile mills. There were white doctors who didn't treat them. (laughs) They couldn't be treated. They were using herbals and, you know, snake oil and all the kinds of things that you do when you don't have a trained physician around. So Merrick said, why don't you come to Durham? They need you. So he did. He became a member of White Rock Church in Durham, kind of, you know, to get to know people, get them comfortable with him. And he came within his mind, knowing of a community where they took care of each other. And in Durham, the African-Americans at that point, the majority of them were coming without a lot of resources, coming from the farms, tenant farmers maybe, but looking to the tobacco and textile mills as ways to lift up their families. And so he and his wife, who is Sarah Makata Dancy Moore was her name, and she was raised in Tarboro. And Tabor had a really viable uh, middle-class community as well. Her uncle, who was John Dancy, who actually was in Congress as well, right, an active politician. Somehow they met. There's a story about it in the book from letters between them we found. And they married, and she came to Durham as a young bride marrying the doctor and was able to assist him, though not trained as a nurse, But what she learned was to help the women, other women in town, understand more about cleanliness, avoiding insect bites, having mosquito netting over the beds, learning how to make lice soap, how to be sanitary, more sanitary to avoid communicable diseases that he taught her to teach them. And there became a nice group of women who helped him. So at first, their home was the hospital that treated African-Americans. 
from 1889 when he came here until 1920 or something when Lincoln Hospital was built, the first one. So for those years, you know, 20 years, he was the only doctor and he was treating people in his home, birthing babies, doing everything, birthing babies, pulling teeth, setting broken bones, (laughs) all of that. My grandmother used to tell the story of running across the street on the weekends because it was too much blood (laughs) on the back porch. We have a lot of information in our book from her because we had a friend who actually recorded cassette tapes interviewing my grandmother when she was in her 80s and she was very lucid. And I always remember her stories because my mom and dad lived with her, with me and my sister, when my father was settling his medical practice when they first came back to Durham from Howard University. And daddy was the first African-American board certified surgeon in the whole state of North Carolina. Sarah Dancy, any relation to the customs collector in Wilmington, John Dancy, John C. Dancy? Probably. I I don't have that for sure, but I'm I'm assuming so. Tauborough is not that far from Wilmington either. And and that was their family. Cotty does not know who her father was. Sarah Cotty? Her name was Sarah Makata Dancy Moore, and the community called her Cotty. So Miss Cotty (laughs) was her name. And she was very active. They were both really active in the church, in White Rock Church. At the White Rock Church archives, there's a lot about her. Because Moore died, he died 20 years earlier than she did. And that's an interesting story about women and her women friends and the Federation of African-American Women's Clubs and all of those things she became even more active in once Moore was not living anymore. So he died in 1923 and she didn't die till 1952. So I remember her too. This is her behind me. That's that's a painting that my grandmother did, Lada did Lada Moore Merrick, her daughter. Moore's wife and my mom's mother painted, she did oil paintings. And that is Cotty. And if I move my head, that's also Cotty. That's a photograph of her in her younger days. I was a young child in my grandmother's home and my mother had a new baby. My sister's three years younger than I am. And that's the two of us were all they had at first. My brother is actually nine years younger than I am. So he doesn't know those days. And my grandmother sort of had me with her a lot because my mom was busy with the new baby, right? She was nursing her or whatever needed to be done for my sister. And I'm hanging around my grandmother and she would take me shopping with her and teach me. We'd go downtown Durham and she sewed. She made all of her clothes and she would also uh, make all of her hats for Sunday to match, (laughs) So I remember her telling me to feel the fabrics on the bolts. And then she'd come home and create something beautiful. She'd make some things for me. My mom sewed too. My mom sewed. And and I learned how to sew when I was in college. I made all my clothes. It was carried down through the generations. Your family really was (laughs) like the elders, so to speak, or the patriarchs of the community. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so how was it growing up in that sort of community? Because in this season, we are really talking a lot about the different 
experiences of Black life in North Carolina, and particularly Mm -hmm. Durham in this case, because I interviewed Professor Henry McCoy. I'm sure you know who that is. And so we talked about the power of imagery and how Durham was unique in that you had, for example, women who made up a large part of the administrative roles in a lot of the businesses in Durham, where that didn't really happen throughout the South and other places very often. And so older women, you know, that he has interviewed in his lifetime, talk about believing they could do many things because they saw other people who looked like them when they were younger doing those things. Well, that theme of you have to see one to do one, correct? I've heard Marion White Edelman. That's one of her quotes. So, yes, I grew up knowing women who were gainfully employed. Our teachers were often PhDs in high school. They had high schools in Durham when my mother was growing up, actually. That was a difference in Columbus County, which I think more wanted to do was go back and have high schools down there. You've read about Cece Spaulding, who came here. Well, he was Moore's nephew. He was one of his uncle's children, his mama's brother's children. And when he came, he did not have even an eighth grade education, you know, formal education. So even though he grew up in Columbus County, he came to Durham and at the age of 21, he finished high school before he became president of the Mutual and, you know, traveling all over the United States, raising business work in business. My dad used to say, be careful shaking his hand. He may not come back with a hand. <laughs> so he was Charles Clinton Spaulding, and his, his father was Moore's uncle. episode, we'll explore how gender factored into the complicated social dynamics of both Durham and North Carolina during this time period. This includes how gender combined with class, race, and income level shaped the socioeconomic fabric of Durham, particularly after the 1900 white supremacist campaign and suffrage amendment eviscerated Black political participation in the state until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We'll also explore the important role African-American women played in the upbuilding of their communities in North Carolina after Black men in the state lost the vote due to that amendment. Also, be sure to check out the Why Though podcast. Host Benjamin Jacobs takes listeners on a personal journey through his record collection, begging the question, is there anything more terrifying than Ben's taste in music? Ben is also the host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, which focuses on the history of the Thirty Years' War, a 17th century religious conflict fought primarily in Central Europe. (laughs) 